Hamlet podcast, episode 40. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. As I am sure is already rather obvious, I really love this play and almost everything about it. Within all of the terrific scenes and structures and stories within it, I think that this short scene we'll cover in this episode might just be my favourite in the play. It's a turning point, a seemingly tiny encounter between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth in the aftermath of this ruined banquet. Everyone has left, and it's just the two of them on stage. Perhaps they're at the dinner table, or on their thrones, or draped over each other. It's that exhausted end-of-the-evening time when really they should go to bed. But before they do, they speak to each other. With everyone gone, they can exhale a little. Be honest with each other a little. Macbeth speaks first and says, It will have blood, they say. Blood will have blood. Stones have been known to move and trees to speak. Augurs and understood relations have by maggot pies and choughs and rooks brought forth the secretest man of blood. What is the night? Macbeth has spilled blood, and he's starting to realise that there's a price to pay for doing so. The idea that spilling blood will cause more bloodshed can be traced all the way back to the book of Genesis in the Bible. The King James Version states, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Having seen the ghost of his murdered friend leering at him across his own dinner table, Macbeth may rightly be starting to wonder at the price he'll have to pay for the murders he's committed. Worse than more blood is the concern about being found out. If Banquo's own ghost is abroad, who knows what other signs might reveal themselves and proclaim his guilt. Stones have been known to move, he says, and trees to speak. He's thinking about instances when the physical world intervened to reveal a murderer. Trees, as well as stones, were imagined capable of whispering secrets. There's an episode in the Latin poem The Aeneid by Virgil where a tree is instrumental in revealing a whodunit. On top of that, there's the tradition of augury, the interpretation of omens. Hamlet may have defied this, But Macbeth is a militant believer, as we will continue to see. Auguries and what he calls understood relations, the connections between signs and stories as interpreted by those who can spot them, can also reveal the details of a murder. They have done so by the use of maggot pies, chuffs and rooks, he says. These are all different birds. While a maggot pie sounds like it could be a really hideous image, It's actually an older form of the name magpie. Chuffs and rooks are ominous birds as well. All three species were a bad omen. Chuffs in particular are dramatic. They are black birds, a little bigger than a jackdaw, and they have a distinctive red beak and red legs. Macbeth's concern here is that these birds are a further example of the kind of evidence that can reveal a murder. And of course given that everything evil is coming in threes in this play, it's not an accident that Macbeth lists three different kinds of these birds that could lead to trouble for him. 
and he's probably right to fear that even a few birds flying in a particular pattern might be enough to reveal his crimes. According to a brilliant book about crimes and mentalities in early modern England by Malcolm Gaskell, and I quote, it was common to refer to brute beasts, fowls of the air, and even stones of the earth, and the offended wind turning against murderers. Gaskell describes crows and ravens driving men to confess their crimes. Animals intervene to corral the guilty and protect the bodies of the murdered. And he goes into much detail of that strange phenomenon of the bodies of murder victims weeping fresh blood in the presence of their murderer. We discussed this back when Macbeth only had Duncan on his conscience, but I'll put more details of these strange phenomena and the book in the show notes for this episode. Certainly, Macbeth is starting to consider how he might get caught, and he knows he won't be a secret man of blood for too long. For now, though, he asks that most banal of questions. What time is it? What is the night? Lady Macbeth has a seemingly banal answer. Almost at odds with morning, which is which? This equivocal answer, that it could be still night and maybe be morning, is a lovely moment for the actress. She can be exhausted, angry, horrified, fed up, any number of responses. However she says it, it does leave room for Macbeth to ask her opinion. He involves her again as he asks, How sayest thou that Macduff denies his person at our great bidding? He's wondering what Lady Macbeth makes of the fact that Macduff wasn't at the feast. He denied his person at Macbeth's bidding. The word can mean both invitation and, of course, instruction. A summons to dinner at the Macbeths wasn't really something they thought you should decline. But Macduff has done so, and we already know that he opted not to go to their coronation either. Lady Macbeth answers with a question. Did you send to him, sir? She's asking if Macbeth has written or sent a messenger to find out why Macduff wasn't there. It is a bit of a surprise that she calls him sir in this line. There's a surprising formality to this, especially given how intimate and intense their relationship has been throughout the play. There are various ways to play it, but whatever the actress might choose, it's important that we hear this little shift. Macbeth now answers at length. I hear it by the way, but I will send. There's not a one of them, but in his house I keep a servant feed. I will tomorrow, and betimes I will, to the weird sisters. More shall they speak, for now I am bent to know by the worst means the worst. For mine own good all causes shall give way. I am in blood stepped in so far that should I wade no more, returning were as tedious as go o'er. Strange things I have in head that will to hand which must be acted ere they may be scanned. Macbeth here intimates that he had prior knowledge that Macduff wouldn't be coming. He heard it by the way, and says that he will send an inquiry. More chilling, though, is his admission that there's not a one of them but in his house I keep a servant feed. He has a spy in the house of every noble in Scotland, 
That's an incredible thing to say aloud, and a huge web of information for him to exploit. This is how he might have known that Macduff wouldn't be coming to dinner. Next, he explains that tomorrow, and early tomorrow, for good measure, he will go and visit the weird sisters again. He wants to know more of what the witches might be able to tell him. He is hell-bent on knowing the worst, by whatever means necessary. And, presumably, if he's going to deal with witches, he knows that this too will come at some kind of a terrible price. Regardless, he's going to get those sisters to speak more to him. There's a nice Shakespearean antithesis here, as he juxtaposes knowing the worst, by the worst means, for his own good. Good and bad opposite each other. But what's good for Macbeth is good only for him. For his good, all causes shall give way. He'll sacrifice anything. Now comes one of Macbeth's most famous lines. He confesses that he feels as though he's waded through so much blood already, as if he's crossing a river of blood, that turning back now would take just as much effort as continuing to the other side. He's come this far, he's saying. He might as well continue. The image is awful, because we have already seen him covered with blood, and now he's starting to get used to it. I am in blood stepped in so far, that should I wade no more, returning were as tedious as go o'er. Macbeth ends his speech with a couplet. He tells his wife that he has strange things in mind, that will have to be performed before they can be contemplated. Strange things I have in head that will to hand, which must be acted ere they may be scanned. They'll go from head to active hand before even an eye can be cast over them. There's probably a theatrical metaphor here. He's giving a sense of an actor about to take the stage and perform something incredible or strange, who barely has time to look at the script before he launches into the main event. Goodness knows what Macbeth is planning to do next. He certainly isn't about to tell his wife. If there's a glimmer of excitement or even mania in this couplet, Lady Macbeth sees it for what it is. She says, You lack the season of all natures. Sleep. Again we have this crack appearing between them in the language they use. Macbeth referred to her as thou, and then she called him sir, and here she responds to him as you. These different modes of address show that there is a gap between them. They're no longer equals in this. Macbeth hasn't been sleeping. In his own head he's presumably still haunted by that voice crying that Macbeth hath murdered sleep. Sleep deprivation can do awful things to the mind and the spirit. Macbeth is one of the great literary insomniacs, and his wife would be far happier if she could just get him to go to bed and get some sleep. This line is an invitation, and for once Macbeth accepts. His response is, Come, we'll to sleep. My strange and self-abuse is the initiate fear that wants hard use. We are yet but young indeed. Come, he says, let's go and sleep. Very ominously, he tells his wife that his strange and self-abuse, whatever behaviour he's displayed, his strange outbursts and carry-on at the dinner, and anything else that has given her a pause, 
It's just because he's still a beginner in all this. It is the initiate fear. The fear of the newcomer, the beginner, the novice. He's only afraid because he isn't used to this. He wants or lacks hard use. He needs a good deal more practice. And he hints that they're going to get plenty. He ends the scene with what feels, frankly, like a threat. We are yet but young indeed. There's a whole lot more to come. There probably weren't intervals in Shakespeare's theatre in the way that we have them today. Usually an intermission comes somewhere around halfway through a performance. If ever there was an argument for Shakespeare having had intervals too, I think this scene would be very helpful in making the case. The end of this scene is an ideal place to take a break, because we're a little over halfway through the text. And over the course of these 20 or so lines, Shakespeare has written a brilliant, subtle, kind of join-us-after-the-break map of what's still to come in the play. There will be signs from the natural world that will somehow betray Macbeth. Macduff will come into his own as a storyline in the play and a character in his own right. We'll see Macbeth's servants and how they operate in other people's houses, and we'll see how Macbeth himself gets on when he goes again to see the witches, and they're coming up in the next scene. The strange things in Macbeth's head include some of the worst crimes committed in any Shakespeare play. Darkest of all, this is the last time that we see Macbeth and Lady Macbeth on stage together. We have about 30 more episodes to go, the other half of the play pretty much, but neither of them will survive this play, and it's kind of shocking that we've already seen the last of them as a couple. I myself had planned to take a little break or intermission after this scene, but since I missed an episode a few weeks back, I'll probably be right back with you next weekend. In the meantime, I want to give a special shout-out to all the Leaving Cert students who may be listening. I feel I should almost apologise that we've only got as far as here before the exams that will be starting during the week ahead. Anyone with a last-minute question to do with the play, or anything to do with Shakespeare, please feel free to get in touch. The quickest way is probably on Instagram. We are at Hamlet Podcast there, but we will happily talk about Macbeth. I hope the exam questions are exciting and that your answers will flow very easily. We'll all be thinking of you. Regardless of the real-time exams looming as I record this episode, rest assured that our journey through the play will continue, and I want to thank you, as ever, for listening and tuning in every week. The website is probably going to get a revamp in the coming weeks, so do be sure to pay a visit, thehamletpodcast.com, and as I mentioned, we're on Instagram as well. I'll be back with another episode at the usual time next week, and I hope you'll join me then.